I want to take you back tonight. If you'll look for the little book of Lamentations, whether you have a hard copy or you have a digital copy, I want to start there, but I only want to read a few words from a few different passages. And then I want to take you to the book of Isaiah. So if you like to cheat and sneak ahead, then have Isaiah on deck and we'll go there in a moment. As you prepare yourself, I want to introduce this word tonight by giving you just a little bit of Bible study. And I mean literally studying the book of the Bible, the book of Isaiah. And I don't mean we're going to run through it verse by verse, but let me give you an overview. Isaiah is such a powerful book in Advent season because of the prophecies of Jesus. If you've ever read the book of Isaiah, left to right, you realize that all over the place is virgin birth and a branch of Jesse and a root of Jesse and a branch growing up out of dry ground and the tender root and he who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and the chast... Isaiah's full of Messiah. It's the messianic prophetic book of the Old Testament. But Isaiah is special uh, in more ways than one. Not only is it the great prophetic book of Jesus, Isaiah is a book that is a miniature of the Bible. There are 39 books of the Old Testament, and there are 27 books of the New Testament. Isaiah contains 39 chapters that are pre-exile chapters. Before Israel goes into exile under the Babylonians, Isaiah chapter 1 to chapter 39 occurs. Chapter 1 to chapter 39 has a lot of biography, a lot of conversations between people as it was in the days of. He would speak to the king. When you get to chapter 40, the tone changes in the book of Isaiah. It changes completely. There's no more biography. From chapter 40 to the end of Isaiah, there's no more as it was in the days of so-and-so said to so-and-so, and then he turned and went over here. It's not a narrative book. Not the last half. So much so that Bible scholars say there's two Isaiahs. There's first Isaiah and there's second Isaiah. First Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 1 to 39. Second Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 40 to chapter 66. Strangely enough, just as there is a 400 plus year gap between the close of the Old Testament and the close of the New Testament, when Malachi ends his book, there's about a 450 year gap before the events of Matthew begin to occur. There's about a 150-year gap between the close of Isaiah chapter 39 and the opening of Isaiah chapter 40. And what happens in that 150-year gap is the invasion of Jerusalem by the Babylonian army. So the entire first half of the book, the Old Testament version of Isaiah, is a prophecy of, it's coming, bad stuff's coming. In fact, there are 22 woes in the book of Isaiah, W-O-E, woe. It's going to get bad. 22. 20 of them are in 1st Isaiah. Because it's prophetic. Woe, bad stuff's coming. Then the exile of Israel and about a 150-year gap. And somebody later, not Isaiah the son of Amos, not the same guy that's in the front half of the book of Isaiah, but somebody later starts writing prophecies of a Messiah and they put them in the scroll of Isaiah that encompasses chapters 40 to chapter 66, what we'll call the New Testament side of Isaiah. And strangely enough, when the New Testament side, Isaiah, starts to happen, we get even more messianic prophecies. Fewer woes, only two, and more, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. 
because there's a change of tone. Now, the reason why Isaiah is such a great glimpse of the Bible is because if you've read the Bible left to right, there's also a change of tone in the Bible. You're reading the Old Testament, and then you get to this spot in Malachi, and there's a blank space between Malachi and Matthew, and you move over into Matthew, and suddenly there's this big change of tone. There's this bright light that shows up right at the beginning of Matthew, and that bright light is a little baby named Jesus, and you can feel the whole Bible turn. You can feel something happen. The Bible becomes obsessed with this little boy. And he grows up and it sees him at snapshot at age 12, at age two, and then a snapshot at age 12, and then a snapshot at age 30, and then you follow his life and it becomes obvious that the whole book's been leading up to this guy. But it's the space in between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40. It's that 150 year gap of darkness. It's that what's going on in the world? Why is my whole world falling apart? Why is all hell breaking loose? Why am I unable to find peace? Why am I unable to find happiness? That's where I want to go tonight because that's where we've all been a time or two. We all have been in a space where we need a word from God that is a word of comfort, a word that helps us. Before I read one verse, I want to remind you of something. This come to me this week studying that I just... Feel like it's a word that might help somebody here, but definitely a word that might help somebody there. When the Bible introduces, starts introducing us to the characters of the New Testament, it introduces us to John the Baptist like this. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to nail this because I don't have it memorized word for word, but this is sort of how it sounds in Luke 3 when it says, in the days of Caesar Tiberius. Okay, you know where we're going. Because you've heard that nativity story. In the days of Caesar Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was the tetriarch of Judea, and his brother Philip was the tetriarch of Iberia, and then it goes down to, and Herod was the king over the land of Judea, and Anna and Caiaphas were the high priests over the temple, the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. And it struck me this week how amazing that narrative is because it's trying to show you, here's the top of the chain. Caesar, Pilate, all the governors, the king, the high priests, none of them get the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to nondescript John in the wilderness which I think is the author's way of saying, don't worry about if you're in a wilderness. Don't worry if you're in a dry place. Don't worry if things don't look good. God's not waiting on you to climb some ladder of success and then talk to you. He'll skip Caesar. He'll skip Pilate. He'll skip the governors. He'll skip the king. He'll skip the high priest. He'll skip the other priests. He'll come find you in the wilderness. If you're supposed to hear from God, don't worry you will hear from God. I just want to say that as a way of encouraging you as we begin tonight, because I know that sometimes it feels like you've got to climb some spiritual ladder to get God to listen to you or to hear a word from God, or you've got to be approved because you've read enough and you've prayed enough and you've gave enough and you've fasted enough. And if God can skip all the hierarchies of the world to go give his word to John in the middle of the wilderness, whatever wilderness you're living in, he'll find you there too. Amen. So if you're in the dark, and it feels like there's no hope. 
tonight's for you. If you've ever been in the dark and you've came out because you found hope, it's for you. If you know that there's a chance someday that's going to feel like there's no hope, that's a pretty good bet, then this is for you. Why lamentations? Great question. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) First 39 chapters of Isaiah, and then the invasion of Israel, 150-year gap. Last 27 chapters of Isaiah, exile. The space in between is the book of Lamentations. It doesn't look that way in your Bible because we don't stop in the middle of Isaiah and go, okay, now, audio. I wish sometimes we did this. This would be a, to me, this would be a really user-friendly Bible. If at the end of Isaiah 39 it went, dear reader, if you really want to see what was happening in the world, jump to the book of Lamentations because right here, that's happening. But, of course, our chronology doesn't work that way. The books get laid out different. So we're going to play that way anyway. All right? So Lamentations chapter 1, verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. Each time I hit that line, we're going to move to another verse. But notice, she has none to comfort her. Verse 9. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. Verse 17. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. Verse 21. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts comforts me. I hope you caught the trend. Four times in the opening chapter of the book of Lamentations, which by the way is a word that means lament. Things aren't good. I'm about to write a... This is... By the way, Lamentations is a funeral poem. It's a funeral dirge. It's Jeremiah writing a letter to Israel saying, we told you so. This was coming. You didn't repent. The temple's now wasted. We're in a hopeless place. And he sings this poem, poem song, over desolate Jerusalem. And what's the repetitious word? You get, every good song, don't bore us, get to the chorus. Every good song's got to have a good hook. You got to go to the main melody line. That's what makes you remember a song. What's the main line in Lamentation song? No one to comfort me. No one to comfort her. No one to comfort us. No one to comfort me. Over and over and over. That's a depressing song, but sometimes depressing songs are what you need when you're depressed, I guess. And Jeremiah writes a depressing song. There's no one to comfort me. Because Jeremiah is writing in that space, in that space where everything has fallen apart. And if you were living in Isaiah's day, you've lived with the 39 chapters of Isaiah. You've lived with Isaiah, son of Amos, declaring, whoa, whoa, everything's going wrong. And then the temple falls and Jeremiah sings the funeral song and no one has comfort and it's a world full of depression and does God even care? And for 150 years, no one adds to the Isaiah scroll. And then someone decides to. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Here comes the first word. After Lamentations. 
chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort. Yes. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let me remind you of lamentations. She has no comfort. We have no comfort. I have no comfort. You have no comfort. And then the author of Isaiah starts to write, and what are the first words God says to say to her? Comfort. Yes, comfort, my people. I love the fact that there's comfort. Yes, comfort in the text. I mean, I don't know what your translation looks like, but most of them are similar. Comfort, yes, comfort. It's almost as if God goes, comfort, yes, I know you don't expect this because I've been, there's been funeral songs that have been being performed about no comfort, no comfort, no comfort, no comfort, but yes, comfort. I love that God steps in and gives a contrary word to what you've been used to. Because it's dark and it's hopeless and all hell has broken loose. And so the only way to describe it is there's no comfort anywhere. We're in an uncomfortable world. There's no peace for me. And, G- and God comes in and says, okay, now listen up. From now on, comfort, yes, comfort. I have to say comfort, yes, comfort, because it doesn't look like comfort. Because here's the, here's the strange reality about Isaiah chapter 40 all the way through chapter 66. They're not back in the land. They're still in exile. It's just that now God speaks to them in their exile and says, even though you're in exile, even though things do not look good, I'm here to tell you that comfort is what I'm going to give you even though it doesn't look like you deserve comfort, even though it doesn't look like you've earned comfort. I'm here to bring it to you. This is Advent in a nutshell. I got problems. I brought a lot of them on myself. I'm in a dark world. Things are rough. I don't know what to do. No comfort in my soul. No comfort in my heart. No comfort at home. No comfort in my spirit. I'm uncomfortable. And God speaks in the midst of your uncomfortableness and says, contrary to how you feel, comfort, yes, comfort, I'm going to give to you. And I'm going to give it to you, notice verse 2, By telling you that your warfare is over and your iniquity is pardoned. So God's proclamation of comfort in Isaiah chapter 40 is not comfort to you, things are going to go great. Not comfort to you, you're about to be rich. Comfort to you, no more sickness. No. God says comfort for you, you don't have to fight for it anymore and you're not guilty of your sins anymore. I think this is a spectacular opening to this last half of Isaiah, what some people call Isaiah, the last half of Isaiah, that some scholars call it the fifth gospel. There's so much Jesus from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66. It's like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. You could take those 27 chapters and you'd have a a glimpse of Jesus in a prophetic voice. And the first words out of the mouth in Isaiah 40, comfort and here's why. No more war, no more sin guilt. No more war in your soul over who's Lord. No more war in your soul over your own righteousness. No more war in your mind. No more war in your spirit. No more war in your emotions. Let this word from God beat your swords into plowshares. 
and no more guilt of sin. Let that be gone. We know this happens in Christ because Christ comes as the fulfillment of all of the prophetic words of the Old Testament. So when Christ comes, he provides the land of comfort. He says to you, comfort, yes, comfort. No more war in your spirit. I have fought on your behalf. No more guilt of sin. I have taken guilt on your behalf. Christ comes as victor at Calvary for all of us victims. He comes to win a victory so that I can be done with war. I don't have to fight the devil any longer. I think one of the great tragedies of the church is this idea that it is our job to fight the devil. No, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We do wrestle against systems. But we don't wrestle against Satan. Christ has defeated the enemy on our behalf. Any system we're fighting against are systems that we have built, systems that we have designed, and we need to allow those systems to crumble under the awesome weight of what the kingdom of God brings if we'll bring the kingdom of God into our systems. Principalities and powers have no hope against the kingdom of God. But we're running around too much trying to fight an enemy who's been defeated at Calvary, thinking that we can somehow beat the devil as if Jesus didn't do it. Christ has already given the victory. Our victory is in his victory. And at the same time, we're trying to fight sin, thinking that if we could get people to stop sinning, sin wouldn't be a problem. Well, I'm here to say to you that Christ has already defeated sin's power. Christ has already defeated the authority of sin. It holds no sway over who you are. So the war is over and your sin is pardoned. And because of that, you have comfort. Now, let me give you an interesting thing about this word. The Hebrew word for comfort is naham. N-A-H-A-M is how it transliterates to the English. Here's the interesting thing about naham. It's the same word that they translated from Hebrew to English for the word repent. I think that's fascinating. The word comfort and the word repent from the same Hebrew word. That leads me to think that there must be some sort of connection in the Jewish mind between comfort and repent. Now, what is repent? Well, repent in a Hebrew sense has to do with humbling oneself, changing our mindset, but it also has to do with an about face. There's a turn that happens in repentance. The Greeks would add to it and call it metanoia. In the Greek translation, repentance comes to mean a complete change of mind, but that's very similar to turn around, right? If you're marching and you repent, then you turn to go the other way. You turn to go the, the way you came change of direction when you move that into your mindset and then you have a change of mind you've turned your mind towards a direction it was not in before thus the word repent it's interesting that in the hebrew to repent is the same as to be comforted it, it says to me that there is comfort in repentance that when god offers comfort he's offering you what would happen if you changed your mind now let's just do the very simple ABCs right here. God says comfort, yes, comfort. I have to say yes, comfort, because you won't believe it's comfort. And the reason you won't believe it's comfort is because it doesn't look like comfort. All around you, the world's going to hell. You've lost what you know, and you say to me, I'm not comforted, but I say to you, yes, you are, and here's why. Because there's no more war, and your sin's been pardoned. Now, I'm saying comfort, 
in the same way that I say repent, because it's going to take you changing your mind about the war and about the sin in order for you to have the comfort. If you don't change your mind about the war or change your mind about the sin, you'll have no comfort. And if we would change our mind about what's been done on our behalf by Jesus, and we would receive that he has fought the war on our behalf, defeated the enemy on our sake, and we would receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of no condemnation, we're going to have to change our mind about that. If we would receive that, we'd have comfort. And so I encounter people all the time who want to resist the idea that Jesus has already paid it all, and they want to resist the idea that they're forgiven of their sins. They don't want to, they just do. They can't help themselves. They can't help themselves but fight against that because you say to them, Jesus already defeated the devil on, on your behalf, and all they do then is point out what's wrong with the world. Their counter to my saying to them, Christ defeated the devil on, their, on your behalf, is they start to point out all the places they see the devil. Or I say to them, your sins are forgiven. Sin is not an issue with God. And then they start to point out all the stuff in their life that is wrong and all the things that are going wrong. And they attribute the bad stuff to the devil that's going on in the world as proof that God hasn't beat him. And they attribute all the bad things going on in their life as proof that God's trying to teach him a lesson for all their sins. Most people argue against the war is over and your sins are pardoned. It's the reason why repentance comes with comfort. If you could change your mind about the victory of Jesus and change your mind about your status as a forgiven person, comfort could come to you. But because it's so difficult for us to change our mind about the war, I hope you know what I mean when I say the war. I'm talking about that, that battle between good and evil, that we think there's that, that we, we kind of think of it as this fist fight between Jesus and the devil, which I don't believe there was a fist fight between Jesus and the devil. Can, can, I, just, can I take an aside right here for a second? I, I, I wish this could be proclaimed so badly. There was no cosmic fight between Jesus and the devil where they started throwing punches at each other at Calvary and Jesus got uppercut and staggered and then fell down into the grave. Let's, don't look at it that way. Jesus stepped in front of the sword at Gethsemane. He had just been praying all night to his dad. There's a cup coming. The cup is a, is a cup of what, what comes into you, what belongs to you. It's a metaphor. If you drink it, you've accepted it. Jesus says, here's the cup. Father, if there's another way to do this, do what? Win. Let's do that. But if not, I'll drink this cup. And Jesus comes around the corner, picks his disciples, and he just told them, you guys are going to need faith for what's coming. But they slept right through that. We're going to find out. You find out in a second why it's dangerous to sleep through that moment. Because what happens is Peter's got his sword by his side, the same sword he buckled up when he came into Gethsemane because he was going to defend Jesus. And when the soldiers walk around the corner and pull swords and spears to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls his sword and slices off a man's ear. And Jesus grabs Peter puts the sword back, says, live by it, you'll die by it, permit even this, heals the man's ear, and steps in front of the sword of the empire and takes the blow and had all power in heaven and earth to overcome the enemy through the enemy's means. Violence and retribution. And he didn't do it. The interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't stand there and throw punches at the devil. Jesus stands there and takes the punch. He steps into death and he only delivers one blow. 
And it happens when the stone rolls away. Because if death can be defeated, then nothing can defeat what defeats death. Because through the eyes and the lens of sin and the war, death is the ultimate winner. Death is what motivates you. Death is what scares you. Death is what keeps you honest. Death is what hems you in. And when Jesus defeats that, he defeats the powers of darkness. There's no throwing jabs. There's, re- there's stepping into death and stepping out a new creation. The war is over because there's nothing left to fight. Jesus has already conquered it. Now, if you don't believe that, then you're going to go about fighting and scraping and scrapping. And you know what, how that'll manifest? It'll manifest in this life too. If you don't know that Jesus has already won it on your behalf, you're going to try to win it on your behalf. Every confrontation you're going to have to win. Every argument you're going to have to win. Every battle you're going to have to win. You're always going to have to come out on top. It's the only way you're going to be able to prove your value. It's only going to be able to prove your worth. Jesus stepped in and said the war is over. I'll take it. Sometimes the only way you're ever going to know how to win is if you learn how to lose. Just accept the loss. Know that a real victory comes on the other side. He goes, oh, and by the way, as far as your sins, they're pardoned. I took care of that too. I didn't just beat up evil. I conquered the sin issue. So it no longer defines you. You are no longer defined by how you fail. Now, if you struggle with that, I challenge you. Repent. Comfort, yes, comfort. Repent, yes, repent. Let in the middle of that darkness, in the middle of that exilic season, exiles, let the words to be comforted, let that happen in you. Just remember this. Your circumstances do not determine your standing. The circumstances at Isaiah chapter 40 are bleak and dark. So dark that that Jeremiah writes Lamentations, a funeral song. Your circumstances look like hell's going to win. There's probably someone who stumbles across this sermon or any sermon, and maybe it's your moment right now in this life, and maybe you've had this moment who... Your circumstances tell you that you're not going to make it. Things don't look good. I don't believe in simply the power of positive thinking. Like the way we're going to overcome stuff is just to be positive. If just being positive would do it, you didn't need Jesus. You know, we just need to get positive. Just change your attitude. If I had a better attitude, you'd overcome it. I'm a believer in a resurrected Christ. And I believe I participate with him in resurrection. And the only way I get to a resurrection is to go through a death. And so sometimes what needs to change is not just your attitude. Sometimes what needs to change is that some part of you needs to go into that with Jesus. And let that part of you die so that you can come out on the other side exactly where he'd have you to be. Because your circumstances do not determine your value and they do not determine your standing Christ determines your value and Christ determines your standing. So where you are in him, where you have been placed in him, you find your value there. I want to take you to the New Testament for a couple of moments as we start to close because I want to show you this from the other side, okay? What we've done is went to Isaiah and I've looked at Lamentations. I've looked at the Advent season and and, and we've looked at the waiting in the dark. But I want to take you past the resurrection into the teachings of Paul so that we can bring it up to where we are today. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 14 and I want to use 1 Corinthians and I want to use 2 Corinthians as we start to wind it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is the Apostle Paul teaching the Corinthian church about the gifts of the Spirit. And 
in, I don't know what happened in, in uh, a lot of mainstream churches when it came time to deal with the gifts of the Spirit because I wasn't raised in the mainstream church. I wasn't raised in the high church, the liturgical church. I was raised in Pentecostal and Charismatic churches. And in Pentecostal and Charismatic churches, we specialized in talking about the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, that was a constant thing. So we were always teaching about the Holy Ghost. And we were always teaching about the gifts of the Spirit and how to receive them and how to use them and what to do with them. So I've always kind of been curious what others did with these passages because they're real blatant. Like Paul talks a lot about tongues. He talks a lot about interpretation. He talks a lot about prophecy. That was like our wheelhouse. That was right down our alley. But I always wondered how others handled it. Um, I'm saying all that to say this. I don't know how others handle it, but I know what I've seen. And what I've seen is that we have just ignored most of what Paul had to say about the gifts. And we just kind of do whatever we want. And what I mean by that is if you're raised in a tradition where they tell you the gifts ended when the apostles died, then we just accept that. Because I've heard people say that. There's no gifts of the Spirit. Once the, the apostles died, gifts, that's cessation. That's the theology of cessation. They ceased when the apostles died. So they, go, so they don't even worry about it. They just go, you don't ever have to even read that stuff. It's all over with. Um, I have an inherent problem with that because uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he told you he was going to leave you the Holy Spirit. And the, and the Holy Spirit was going to do his work. And it's kind of hard for me to imagine that the Holy Spirit did some work and then went, eh kind of done with that. I don't want to do that anymore. So I got a little struggle with that personally and, and my own background just kind of doesn't just something that just, just doesn't settle right. The other way I think that we handled it is, is we went, well, we're in a different world. Things aren't the way they used to be. So, you know, just whatever, just let the Holy Spirit do whatever he wants to do. And, and if it feels right, we go with it. And then we end up um, in services where the only way we think God's moved is if everybody falls out on the floor been in those services or people have to run around in circles or the music's got to play for two hours or you know I mean I went in churches where people were running across the backs of pews and jumping and hanging off stuff you, I know you guys would think you'd think some of the stuff I went to church in you'd be like this was like a circus and we were calling it the Holy Ghost and I'm not saying the Holy Ghost didn't do things but I think we did a bunch of stuff too like a bunch of stuff that the Holy Ghost was going, well, when you guys are done playing around, you know, I'll, I'll set someone free when you're finished your Jericho march, you know, doing your laps, because we did a lot of that too. And so uh, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm coming at it from having lived inside of that, but, but I say all of that because I think it was kind of like anything goes, whatever. And, and so prophecy became a thing in my environment. And prophecy was was where someone would speak over you something that you needed to change or fix. And it, I, we got in environments where prophecy got scary, man. People get up and say, thus says the Lord, if America doesn't repent, here's what's going to... And that was always a big one, by the way, America repenting. I, I wasn't ever really sure how the whole country was supposed to do that out of one dude's prophecy on a Sunday night. But if America doesn't repent, God's going to do this, and then this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, and God's going to... Stuff got dark. Prophecy got dark. And when it got individual, it got downright mean. Because people get up and go, thus saith the Lord, you've been doing this behind closed doors. And if you don't stop, God's... And they'd, they'd start calling down what God was going to do. And the scary part was that some people were doing that stuff behind closed doors. And so then everybody went, whoa, 
man, God's revealing sin in the house. Woo, we got our revival because God's revealing sin. And let me give you a little tip. First of all, if you just call people out at random in a room and start pointing out sin, it's like playing the lottery. If you play the same number long enough, you're going to nail it because people are doing some freaky stuff. You call it out enough, you're going to find somebody doing it and everybody's going to go, ooh, see, that was the Holy Ghost. Tip number two, the Holy Spirit has to witness as to what Jesus did. And if Jesus died to take away our sins, the Holy Spirit can't then come in and peek under the blood at all of the things that are going on in people's lives. So if you're in an environment where people are pointing out sin, you are in an environment of the Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. So watch out. I just don't think we read this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to them. There's our word. There's Lamentation's main melody, man. There's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1's main word. Comfort, yes, comfort. And here comes Paul on the other side of the resurrection going, true prophecy will edify people, exhort people, and comfort people if it doesn't edify you. If it doesn't exhort you, that's build you up, encourage you, and comfort you. Build you up, encourage you, and comfort you. It's not the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the war is over and your sins have been pardoned. What's on the other side of lamentations is lament. What's on the other side of the funeral? Comfort. Yes, comfort. Why, why comfort? Yes, comfort. Because you're not going to believe it. Because you're trapped in an old mindset. So comfort, yes, comfort. Why? War is over. Sins are pardoned. You want to hear what the prophetic word for you is post-Pentecost? Is this edification, exhortation, comfort. The comfort is not, you're just fine. You don't have any problems. See, this is the, what detractors say about the message of grace. This is what they think you guys are coming in here on a Friday night and hearing. If you go hear those grace guys, here's what they're going to tell you. No problems. Everything you're doing is okay. Whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. That's great. God loves all the, all the crap you're doing. God's cool with that because Jesus has already paid for it. You just keep doing all of it you want. See you in heaven someday. That's what they think we're saying, I think, because that's the accusations we get. It's like anything goes. You go, to, go down there in those environments of grace, anything goes. The reality is far different. It is a focus on Christ and what He has done to defeat evil and how sin has been put into Christ. So the encouragement then and the exhortation and the comfort would be, go live as if you have turned your mind towards a God who is not fighting anymore and who pardons your sins. Go live in a state of comfort knowing that He has done this for you. And no one who lives in a state of comfort by the power of the Holy Spirit could ever downplay how big what Jesus has done for them is by insulting the Spirit of grace. And so prophetic word says, exhort, edify, comfort, the war is over. Your sins are gone. Sounds to me like we have a mandate. We, we have a mandate in this hour to prophesy. And, and when I say prophesy, we, we've, we've messed this up. We think prophecy is the prediction of events that have yet to happen. 
because we're thinking of prophetic word, we're thinking of it in the way we think of a seer. S-E-E-R. What's a seer? Someone that knows what's coming around the corner. We've, we've confused the prophetic word in the church with the seer. So we go, this guy's a prophet. He can tell you what's coming up tomorrow. No, the prophet will exhort, edify, and comfort you. You get to have a prophetic word every time you open your mouth to exhort, edify, and comfort somebody. You realize you're an agent of prophecy. You go, well, I don't think that's my call. Sorry to disappoint you. It is your call. Here's why. You're a disciple of Jesus, right? You're trying to, you're out here walking as Jesus walked. That's not just loving your neighbor, although it's never less than loving your neighbor. You're out here doing exactly what he did. Revelation 19.10 says the testimony, listen to this, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What comes out of Jesus' mouth? Prophecy. You're his disciple. What comes out of your mouth? Prophecy, edification, exhortation, comfort. Build them. If what you have tears them, that's not your disciple moment in Jesus. Let your disciple speak. Let your disciple mouth speak. Exhortation, comfort. 2 Corinthians. Here's our final verse. This was, this was really where I was going to start tonight originally. Um, I was going to read these two verses as a way of laying this thought out and then take you back. And I, I thought that was a little clunky. I thought, why, why take you backwards? We could take you forwards. I like to do that sometimes. but So instead, let's land where I was going to begin. And if I had a title, it's going to be right here. Because I want you to see what Paul says the second time he writes to the Corinthians. I think that prophecy word in chapter 14 got him stirred. And then I think the next time he picked up his pen, he thought, let's work on that a little bit. Let's work on that comfort. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That would be my title for this message. He's the God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our Consolation, I'm not sure why the New King James decided to switch words, same word in the Greek, it's comfort. <laughs> As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and your salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and it is for your salvation's. Paul says, the sufferings of Christ abound in me so that you can be comforted. This is our call, to look at the sufferings of life that we go through as participation in the suffering of Jesus. Not so that we can be saved, but because we are. I am, there's problems. This is where we can be, we go, I got problems right now. I got struggles in my life, bad things going on. 
It's not darkness as in God has left me, hell is winning. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. I hate it when people say that. They don't know what they've done to give up on the kingdom. When people go, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Worse than it's ever been. I think it's like we don't understand what we are agents of. You're agents of a greater kingdom. You are the spreading of light in the midst of the darkness. Don't give up. Don't give up in the middle of the world that needs comfort. If you're suffering, then you're suffering in Christ. Paul said if we're suffering, it's, it's part of the suffering that is in Christ so that others can be comforted. I listened to testimonies. I listened to Larry's story tonight of, of overcoming cancer. and He didn't take any credit for it. It wasn't him that did it, but the power of the Spirit that did the work in him in simple faith and simple obedience. Well, if that's not a story of comfort to someone else who goes through that, then what in the world was the purpose of going through it? Our entire lives are that way. It's to say, if not so that I can comfort someone else, why else am I in this? And that's Jesus. Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. But if not, I'll drink from it. Why? Because by drinking from it, every one of them out there that ever go through being wronged and being embarrassed and being hurt and being left and being betrayed and being mocked, they can be comforted in knowing that I got there first. That when it seems to crush them, they can be comforted in knowing that it crushed me first. That's Paul. That's, Paul. That's what Paul says. That's why, we're, that's why we're comforting people. Not because we're trying to lie to them. You're just trying to cover up their sin. No, we're speaking a truth that they just can't see because it's too dark. There's too much lament. They can't see it. And so we got to go, comfort, yes, comfort. The war is over. Sin has been taken care of in Christ. Be comforted with those words. Be built up with those words. Why is it that Jesus is always introducing himself to his disciples in weird moments with the phrase, fear not? Fear not. They see him walking on the water. Fear not. It's because fear is a default position. We, we slip back into fear easily when we don't know what's going on around us and things are shady and we are left alone and we're scared and so we get afraid. Grown men who spent their lives on the water are afraid that night on the water. As an illustration that it doesn't matter how smart you are, how tough you are, and how experienced you are, you're just a heartbeat from fear. It just needs to get big enough. You go, oh, I can handle it. It just needs to roar loud enough. It just needs to get close enough to your front door. That's the illustration. And so Jesus walks into those situations and goes, fear not. It's his introductory statement. Fear not. Just put your eyes right here. If your eyes are right here, you don't have anything to be scared of, Peter. You can come out of that boat, walk on water with me. Don't fear the, don't fear the waves. If you look at the waves, the waves are going to win. But if you look at me, come here. What, what a moment. Fear not. It never really goes away, that encroachment of darkness up against your, the gates of your heart. Never really goes away. But the need to see Jesus never goes away as well. John, the same John that was in the boat that night when Jesus comes walking on the sea and Jesus goes, fear not. Same John is at Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. And he sees the bright light that we see as Jesus in Revelation 1. But he don't know who it is. 
And he turns around to look and he falls on his face. And the first words out of its mouth, fear not. And the moment he hears it, he knows, that's my Jesus. That's how Jesus would introduce himself to me. I'm going to be okay. His first words were, fear not. That sounded familiar. My heart's easing up. You know what people need to hear when they walk into the doors of our church? Fear not. It's going to be okay. Fear not. Not the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Did you guys watch the news last night? Let me share this YouTube video with you. Did you see who voted for who? Fear not. Comfort, yes, comfort. In the middle of the deluge, comfort, yes, comfort. You want hell and you want bad news? Go for it. Easy to find. You're one step away. It's right there encroaching on the walls. You'll find it when you get back out in the parking lot. When you turn your phones on in a minute, boom, there it comes. Slamming right up against you. So, in this, fear not. Fear not. I give this word of encouragement, not just to you, but to those who watch, who are searching, who need, who desperately needed the God of comfort. That's why they clicked on this message. You just needed to hear the God of comfort. May it be comfort to your soul to know. The war is over. Your sins are pardoned. Fear not. Let's pray. You are good, Father. You are good. And your mercy endures forever. Thank you. Thank you that we can fear not. You are with us. We give you praise tonight. Even though the waves of the world slam against our walls, we've built our castles of joy and peace and hope and Salvation in the world is raging, man. It's a dark place. But there's hope. We're in a season where we celebrate church history of honoring the arrival of Jesus and anticipating His arrival to come. But we're also looking back past before you got here to those who waited for hundreds of years anticipating, anticipating, anticipating. In the midst of their darkness, you stepped in and said, Comfort, yes, comfort. <laughs> Step into the midst of our darkness. Step into the midst of someone's darkness who's watching or who's listening and they need comfort, yes, comfort. The war is over. Their sins are pardoned. You've given us double. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mm.